It's been a pleasure to be with you these, what, six weeks now? The only regret I have is that we couldn't have sat around a table with our Bibles on the table in front of us in conversation as a seminar format, more than what we do here. Um, that's the way I like to teach, and I think in the long run we get more out of it that way. But with the limitations we've had for six weeks, for 45, 50 minutes a week, just to begin to get into this book is all we can really expect. Because this book, like all the Gospels, can be cursorily read, or they can be mined as though you were mining deep in the ground for gold. And it is my belief that it is only the latter, it's the mining, that produces the real thing. To, that is, to get inside of it, immersed in it, steeped in it. And that eventually begins to bring it to greater light, and it begins to have a more profound effect upon us. Um, In any case, I want to leap into it again this morning and, first of all, ask you, have you noticed anything? Uh, is anything happening to you as you ponder these verses from the sacred text? Um, anything different? Are you thinking differently? Are you perhaps disturbed a little bit, or are you challenged? Are you hopeful? What's happening? When you read on the surface, you get the directness of Jesus is not backing away from anything. Hmm. But he, and we are being called after him, set that example. But then I think the thing that's happened through this is that all the subtleties of what he was saying Yeah, that's part of the reason, one of the reasons that mining the depths is so important, because there are lots of subtleties, nuances, and, and mysteries, some of which we will never plumb to the depths. Um, but I think you're right. Um, who else? Any, have any thoughts, comments, reflections so far? Um, this is why I prefer a table, because if we were sitting around a table, we'd have a lot more dialogue. It'd be easier. I know it's difficult when you're, especially when you're talking to a relative stranger. Um, well, there are two, I've said several things here that I know were controversial, but let me back up to say that the gospel is controversial. If you don't think it is, you don't, you aren't listening. This stuff is very controversial. I mean, Jesus didn't get killed for lack of controversy. Think about that.
and we claim to follow him. So shall we not then be engaged in controversy? Of multiplicity of controversies. Not the least of which is the one he gets into with Peter. And let's look at it. Chapter 8. We're getting right to the heart and soul of this gospel today. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, the watershed passages, what comes before them leads up to them, what takes place after them is consequence of them. We have Jesus head to head with Peter and also later James and John. The disciples, as we have seen, do not seem to get it. They don't understand. They, their eyes do not see. Their ears do not hear what Jesus is trying to tell them. Let me pause there to say that it's easy for me to say that and for us to think that about the first century, first disciples of Jesus. But one of the reasons Mark is writing this gospel is because the church later on, towards the end of that century, is having the same problem. Those who have been called to be in his fellowship and to follow him on the way, which is one of Mark's favorite phrases, do not understand the full implication of what he is about. Their ears do not hear, their eyes do not see. So Mark is trying to help the church to see what Jesus wanted Peter to see and the others. And of course that means that you and I also sit under the judgment of this text. For we do not see. We are blind, like blind Bartimaeus and many of the others, the disciples, although Bartimaeus came to see very quickly, rather ironically, what Jesus was about. And Jesus called him as one of his disciples to follow him on the way. Look at the text, 831. He begins to teach them that the Son of Man... Let me back up to verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, we are in enemy territory, as far as a Jew of first century is concerned. This is Roman territory. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who are people saying that I am? Or let's put that in a colloquial, as it more likely would have been in the Aramaic. What are people saying? How do they understand what I'm about, who I am? What do you hear? And it says, they told him. John the Baptist. Well, there was plenty of rumors still circulating about John. He's not been dead very long. And Jesus has been one of John's disciples. 
Others say Elijah the prophet who would return before the Messiah would come. So maybe Jesus was Elijah, precursor to the Messiah. Others just one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say? I am. That's the question that Jesus always puts to us, isn't it? We have to decide. And the thing about it is, once you decide, you have made your mind up in a sense, at least partially. And you're either going to name him as something significantly remote from you that you don't have to take him seriously. Or you may do as Peter said, and that is, you are the Christ, which means in the Hebrew, the Messiah. It was translated in the Greek as Christos, the anointed one, which means in the Hebrew, the one who would come to deliver Israel from its enemies. And if that be so, And Peter was going to take him very seriously at this point, and so would hundreds, thousands of others, because if this is the one to deliver Israel from its enemies, we want to be there. We want to follow this guy. We want to be there on the day when this happens. And, of course, living under Roman rule only accentuated the expectation of the coming of the great deliverer of Israel, the Messiah. So, is he? Is he not? There were many pretenders, many claimers to the throne, so to speak. How will we know? How do we know? Peter is standing there talking with him. And he's already spent considerable time in his presence. And without missing a beat, he he says, you are the Messiah. Isn't that wonderful? And it's so easy to say it. Now here, look at the next verse. What does it say? Don't tell anybody. Why? Aren't we supposed to proclaim the Messiah's coming? If the Messiah's coming, we want everybody to know. Why is Jesus telling them to be silent? This is the great command to silence that appears more than once in this gospel. The messianic secret lies behind it, as the scholars call it. The The text doesn't call it the messianic secret, but that's how it's gotten named in the long line of scholarship. What is this messianic secret about? Why is he saying, keep quiet? What do you think? Well, the possibility. If you're told to do one thing, you're going to do something different. Reverse psychology. It's if I tell you not to do it, you will do it. 
And it happened more than once in this gospel, did it not? When he healed somebody, says, don't say anything, and they go right out and say something. So was that his way of getting people to do it? It was a little manipulative, if it was, were. I doubt it. When would be the right time? Ooh. And how many are going to be standing around listening to someone say, you know why the Romans crucified people on crosses lining the roads? That's how they got rid of the people they didn't want. Criminals, political dissidents. People who were a threat to their power. Yes. And... Those who committed an act of sedition against Rome. Pretenders to all kinds of thrones, movements, counter forces throughout the empire, including the Jews who were a thorn in the flesh of the Romans. Believe me, they were. One reason being that uh, the Jewish cons Jews considered their land holy. It was bad enough when the Gentiles tried to invade it, but it was worse when the Caesar, calling himself Lord and God, divine, should invade their homeland and more so come into the temple with the soldiers, as eventually happened in the year 70, and bring the effigy of Caesar and implant it inside of the temple, as though to say, your God is not God, Caesar is God, and here's proof. The ultimate sacrilege in the mind of a Jew. So when's a good time to call him Messiah? What's the danger of calling him Messiah if he's going to deliver Israel from his enemies? What, how's Rome going to view this? Watch out. I mean, they've been putting down insurrections for a long time in, among the Jews. And here comes another one. What was the situation with the Jews? Of, of, who, he, of who he is. What, what perpetuates it? Ah. That's an interesting take on that. Perpetuates the mystery. Maybe Jesus, maybe God really does want to keep us just slightly off balance. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. That'll do it. Well, you can, as, Lewis, as I told you, C.S. Lewis said he either was what he said he was or he was an absolute, he's absolutely insane. And I'm sure plenty wrote him off as insane for a lot of reasons. Now, there's a reason, though, in this gospel that this charge to silence keeps appearing. And we're going to see now what it is. It's because of this whole theme of misunderstanding. If you are constantly proclaiming him to be Messiah, but you've attached the wrong meaning to it. Does he want you to continue to blurt it out? What if the expectation were that the Messiah would come with all his troops in arms? 
to put down the Roman enemy and deliver Rome from its persecutors. And that is the common expectation of Messiah, riding not unlike Caesar upon a white horse, or a horse anyway. And there's going to be the biggest uprising that the Romans have ever seen. They're going to wish they'd never messed with the Jews. But what's that's the wrong meaning? We're creating a false expectation. We're telling lies about the Messiah, the nature of the Messiah. Worse, we're telling a big lie about God because that is not how God works. Not in Jesus of Nazareth anyway. Now look at the next few verses and here it is. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, notice he does not use the term Christos, Messiah, because that is too loaded with the wrong meaning. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, after three days rise again. He said this plainly. This is clear, folks, but the problem is we don't want to hear it. We being Peter, this is not what we want to hear. This is not the kind of deliverer we're looking for. Jesus has said it very plainly more than once, but they don't get the message. Peter took him. Now, this is like grabbing Jesus and seizing him and shaking him and says to him, he rebukes Jesus, says, no, this is not what it's about. This is not the Messiah we're looking for. You are not going to fail us in this regard. Turning. You have to see the visual of this, if you can imagine it. It's maybe like Jesus was off to the side arguing with Peter. Peter's arguing with him. And Jesus turns around and looks at all of them. And he says, listen, let me tell you something. I'm using the vernacular. Strong language. It's usually much stronger than what ends up in the translations. Then he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I think Mark wants us to see literally that that what's happened is that Peter has gotten in front of Jesus to rebuke him, to stop him, to say no to him. And Jesus says to him, you get back here. Get back here where you belong. You are a follower of me, in essence. 
I am not a follower of you and what you're thinking and expecting and, wait and, and hoping will happen. You've got it backwards, Peter. So get behind me. Now, the place behind is always the place in this gospel of the disciple, of the one who comes after him who follows. If we are not, in if we're not behind him, we can't be following him, according to Mark. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, and he calls him Satan. He's got a satanic view of Messiah. Translate it. Anytime we slip into the position of defining Jesus' mission in terms of the principalities and powers of this world, in terms of using violence to stem, stem violence, we have stepped out of the position of disciple and got in front of Jesus and told him he's wrong. And this is the rub, isn't it? This is where it always comes to eventually. We have to decide whether we can follow this man or not. And he says to Peter and the others, he calls also the multitude with the disciples and says to them, if anyone would come after me, that is, be in the position of my disciple, then let him deny himself and take up his cross Take up my cross? You mean it's going to happen to us like it did to you? Is that what you're saying? And follow you? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, he said. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it gain a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? This is really subtle. But did you catch it? Who gains the whole world here? Who, who, in the historical sense, was gaining the whole world? If not Caesar. What was his mission? To conquer the world. You're going to be like Caesar, in other words. Are you? Disciple? 
Or are you going to renounce Caesar's ways and follow me into the way of the cross? For what can a person give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, there is another little section here in the next chapter. Jesus goes off to the Mount of Transfiguration where I don't want to spend much time on this, but I do want you to notice in verse 7 of chapter 9, it says, A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is, meaning this person, Jesus, whom, to whom you are speaking, who is speaking to you, is my beloved son. Listen to him, it says. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It is true that by the end of this gospel, everyone will have forsaken him. Everyone, including the twelve. So there's a discussion about Elijah here. And then there is a controversy with the scribes. And we eventually get over in um, chapter 10 at verse 35. They're on their way into Jerusalem. Going up to Jerusalem, and notice in verse 32, it makes it again a clear statement of what Jesus' relative position is to them. He said, Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, those who followed were afraid. Back in 32. Then in 33, he begins to tell the, the 12 what is to happen to him, behold, we, now it's not just I, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him, and three days he will rise. The themes of confession, prediction, misunderstanding, and new instruction appear three times in these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. And then we have the encounter in verse 35 with James and John. Now, he's just been through an elaborate confrontation with Peter, and they've all been there to observe it, where Jesus is trying to straighten Peter out about his thinking. And now look what happens. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come forward to him and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What does that sound like? Is it slightly reminiscent of Peter? <laughs> Wanting Jesus to do what Peter wants Jesus to do? 
And now it's expanded a little bit. It's whatever we want you to do. And they say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Oh, who are they thinking like? Everyone in this world who makes a grab for power. This covers the whole multitude of politicians, emperors, kings, and board, mem- board of supervisor members. Everyone who makes a grab for power. We want to sit at your right and your left hand in your glory. And, of course, the irony here is they don't know the end of the story yet. And what happens at the end of the story? Who's hanging beside him on his right and his left as he's crucified? You want their positions? This is where Jesus is heading with it. You want, you want to be on my right and left hand? You don't know what you're talking about. If he could have said it to them while hanging on the cross, he would have said to James and John, hey, look who's on my right, and look who's on my left, and why aren't you there? They'd gone by then. So he says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And so casually and so easily and so almost flippantly they say, oh, we are able. They still don't get it. If they had, they wouldn't have answered quite so fast. He says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And that's a typical, typical Jewish circumlocution in which they don't want to say the name of God because it's too holy to speak it. So they go around it. For those whom, for whom it is prepared. Who's doing the preparing here? It's God, of course. And that's the subtle, mysterious illusion in the text. Allusion, not illusion. It's not mine to grant it. Only God. And then comes the hard part of his teaching. When the ten heard this, they began to be indignant and James and John. Now, why were they indignant? Let's let that question hang a second. Jesus calls them to him and he says, you, you know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them? Their great men exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the doulos, the Greek word doulos, slave of all. 
For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom, it comes down to this pretty simply. What is a ransom? We associate it in our culture mostly with what? Kidnapping. But there's a, there's a much more profound meaning to it. It's the idea of paying money so somebody can get out of jail. It's, it's the offering of something so the prisoners can be released. Theologically speaking, we could say it is the price that has to be paid for the human race to be redeemed, that is, set free from its sin, including and especially the sin of lording it over other people. Now I want to get controversial for a minute because I want you to start thinking about some things you may not want to think about. The President of the United States, George Bush, is the first president I know of except in wartime. I mean previous wars. To on his own to issue executive orders suspending with the right to suspend at his behest, all civil liberties. You ought to read these executive orders if you haven't. Go do a Google search. Did you know, not only can the president seize all public transportation to place it at the disposal of the executive branch of the government, it can name any citizen, non-citizen, an enemy combatant and put you away without the right to habeas corpus. You can be locked away without right presence of an attorney to represent you and nobody would know where you are. And you think it will never happen to you. It probably won't, but some it has already happened to. The president also has the power to seize your car, yours, and put it at the disposal of the state and leave you without transportation. Did you know that? Doesn't worry you? Not likely to happen, is it? Let me tell you what happened in March, I think it was the 23rd of 1933. You remember that time in history? The German Chancellor, you remember his name? 
Adolf Hitler, managed to get the Reichstag, the German Congress, to vote to merge the powers of the prime minister the chancellor, and the chancellor with the powers of the president and make them one, and in the process to suspend the constitution of Germany and give powers to the German Caesar, Kaiser was the word, to enact in effect any laws he wanted to. And the Reichstag went along with it. And I maintain that probably in this country, if it doesn't happen secretly, the day will come when we will indeed vote in one manner of speaking or another to give up our civil liberties out of fear. And it is happening while I speak in terms of the executive branch of this government. If you haven't done your homework, you better go do it. Now, why am I saying this? It's something we may be entirely, mostly out of our hands, but the issue here is not what Caesar does. That's bad enough. The issue here is how will the church be the church in this context? Will we be like the Gentiles, as Jesus put it, lording it over other people, like Caesar does? Or will we choose a different way of life? Will we be his disciples? Will we be servants rather than masters? Remember, Hitler wanted to create a master race, and he wanted to be the master. That is the most Perfect example of what Jesus was talking about way back then that happened in the 20th century, believe it or not. And the tragedy was that the church was asleep at the switch, and not only that, but most of the church in Germany in the 30s capitulated in the face of the powers of Caesars and was very weak with an exception of a remnant that went underground and ended up, for the most part, paying greatly for its opposition to what Caesar was doing, including Dietrich, Bonhoeff, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at being hung by the Nazis just a few days before the camp was liberated by the Allies. There is a real difference, friends, between the way Caesar runs the world and the way God runs the world, the way Jesus calls us into discipleship. And that is where we must make a decision about him. And it is, does leave it to us. You get over into chapter 12, and this is where we're going to have to end, and then I'll leave you on the end of the gospel briefly. But there is this section on, <clears throat> on the controversy the Pharisees and some of the Herodians uh, had with Jesus over paying taxes to Caesar. Chapter 12, verse 13. Now, there are, there are several parties here. Literally, I mean political parties. The Pharisees 
the Herodians, then there were the Sadducees, and there were the Zealots. And at one end you have the Herodians on the most conservative side, that is conservative in the sense that they were milling, willing to make compromise with Rome. Now some Jews would have said that was a radically liberal position. That wasn't conservative. But in terms of conserving the peace, preserving the civil order, and trying to, to keep Rome from doing what it appeared to want to do, the Herodians were in bed with Rome. That included King Herod. And at the other hand, you had the Zealots, the party, I don't know whether you call them the party, the right or the left, it depends on your perspective, but they didn't use that terminology in that day. But the Zealots were very clear what they wanted. They wanted a military uprising against Rome. They, want, they, were, they were looking for the, the kind of Messiah that Peter was looking for. And Jesus says no to all of them, in effect. Now, what happens here? He says to them, they say to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you care for no man, that you're not a respecter of persons, for you do not regard the position of people as important, but truly teach the way of God. Sounds like they're playing up to something here, doesn't it? They're buttering him up, setting him up for something in the way of a trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Boom. They just lowered it. The boom. What have they done to Jesus here? Now, what's the tax that's paid to Rome? It's the tribute to the Caesar. It's required of anyone in any land that, that Caesar happens to occupy. It's paid with the, the silver denarius, the Roman coin, and on the Roman coin is an effigy of who? Caesar Tiberius. Son of God, emperor, divine. The one whose effigy is not supposed to ever come into the temple. Okay? Everybody knows this. Nobody likes paying this tax, believe me. I mean, how was this country founded initially? What, what got things stirred up at the outset? You remember? Yeah. What was the tax about? What happened in the Boston Harbor? Yeah, just over tea. Of course, that's more than tea, wasn't it? Nobody likes to pay tribute to a foreign occupying emperor, army, whatever, right? Might, by the way, as a side, help you understand why there is a lot of resentment about the United States showing up all over the world and requiring all kinds of things and taking over all kinds of enterprises in the name of, quote-unquote, some kind of democracy. We'll leave that as an aside. Well, that's how Caesar works. Well, anyway, so here we are. He's, they put it to him. Is it lawful? Now, what happens if he says yes? Yeah, sure. It's fine. Pay taxes to Caesar. What are they gonna, what's the response going to be? 
Who's going to nail him? All those who are opposed to paying taxes to Caesar. Now nah, they're going to put Jesus to the test. He'll turn his own, many of his followers against him who are seeing him for the wrong reasons perhaps, but they don't want the tax. They're looking for the Messiah. They want the insurrection. And if he says, pay taxes to Caesar, oh boy. On the other hand, what if he says no? Then who's he going to have on his hide? All the Herodians, those who've met into bed with Rome who trying to keep the Pax Romana there in the peace of Rome there in Jerusalem, somehow this instable, unstable situation, they're going to put him out of business real quick if he even gives the slightest hint of not paying the tribute to Caesar. Not only will Caesar come after him, but so will the authorities in Jerusalem because their livelihood depends upon this. Their positions of power. So he doesn't answer them yes or no. He's smart. What does he do? He puts them to, he puts them to the test. He says, reach in your pocket. What have you got in your pocket? And what do they do? They pull out. What do they pull out? A silver denarius. And there they are standing in the temple somewhere around there. A silver denarius. And you look on the silver denarius. And whose effigy is on it? Caesar. Never supposed to be in the temple, did you say? And you brought him in in your pocket. You've got Caesar in your pocket. And you want to ask me whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar? What about you? Not only you pay the tax, you carry him intimately within you. You have already made him Lord. Boy, what an answer to a question. Be careful what you ask Jesus. They answered him, Caesar's, of course. That's the inscription. Oh, my goodness. Then he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the thing God, things that are God's. Now, here's the question. What are Caesar's things? What are God's things? By the way, that image, you see the image, the imago on a coin? What is it else does it bring to mind to a Jew besides Caesar? What image is implanted within all of us as God's children? Genesis chapter 1, created in the image of God, you and me. So which is it? Which is the true image of us, Caesar or God? And, and the question is, uh, which to whom, what do we render who? I mean, Jesus doesn't say you don't have to pay tax to Caesar. There might be some legitimate reasons to do that. I mean, Caesar provides some wonderful services for us. Um, there's some legitimate functions of government. On the other hand, what are the things of God? Are the two the same? Is there any difference between Caesar and God? Are God's ways the same ways as Caesar's ways? And what about this? What about the fact that you and I 
being created in the image of God means that everything in this world belongs to God. And if it is Caesar's, even a portion of it, it's only for a moment or two. This is God's world, not Caesar's world. So Jesus doesn't really tell him what to do, does he? he, what is he it's a brilliant strategy, by the way. He's not going to tell you whether or not to pay your taxes to Caesar. He's going to leave it to you to decide. Oh, my. Yep. And some days, that's not a difficult decision. And other days, it's the difference between life and death. So it continues in that vein, and there are so much more in this text. We haven't even begun to plumb the, the gold mine here, but I want you to notice what happens at the end. After the confrontation with Pontius Pilate and the crucifixion has taken place, and it looks like the movement is over and finished and done with, it was all a grand hoax, if not a just a bunch of blind people following a blind leader who was not what he said he was, at least not in terms of what they expected. And the scene now is the tomb in chapter 16. The, the stone has been rolled back, and that's another circumlocution because there's someone behind the scenes rolling the tomb the stone, and the implication is it's God rolling that stone back. Entering the tomb, they see a young man. This is the Mary now, and Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James Salome. They see this young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white rope, and they are astounded. Who's the young man? We don't know. But there's a possibility, and we just have to think of it as a possibility, that maybe this was Mark. Maybe. Because behind this whole gospel, there loom two large figures beside Jesus. One is Peter, who probably had, with Mark as his scribe, told the story and said, this is what I want to say to the church. Telling his own story about his own betrayal, his own misunderstanding, his own false sense of messiahship, and then eventually the fact that he changed his mind and heart and began to follow Jesus along the way. And then here is this young, unknown person sitting there in the tomb. And it could be Mark, but maybe not. In any case, it wouldn't surprise me if that is a veiled allusion to the author of this gospel. And he says, don't be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There we are, following him again. He's in front, we're behind. And there you will see him as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment came upon them, and they said nothing to anyone. There is the silence yet again, for they were afraid. End of gospel. It's over. And it is just now beginning. Because we live in Galilee. And Jesus is still going before us.
I've come to realize one thing in all my years. This is a confession. Discipleship is a lot harder than I thought it was when I started upon the journey to follow him. And yes, I have betrayed him more than once along the way. I have misunderstood. I have been faithless. I've not been trusting. I wanted to seek things that he did not give his blessing to. That is to say, I'm as concerned about how to make the next dollar as you are. But at the end of the day, I trust in his grace. And then when the push comes to shove and a decision must be made, I hope, even if it's in my dying day, I will say, Lord, you are the one whom I follow. God bless you in your journey along the way. May you not be disappointed. Let us be in prayer. Go with us, Christ Jesus. Take us by the hand. Lead us and comfort us when we need your comfort and show us what it is we must do to be your faithful disciples. In your holy name, amen. Charlie, behalf of everybody, thank you for giving us all these weeks. Next Sunday when we come back here, we're all going to feel a bit of a hole in, a, in ourselves.